Welcome back to A Fresh Story, the podcast where we have conversations about brave decisions to start over again. I'm Olivia. And I'm Jenny. And we're so glad you're here today. Hello, 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 sister. Hello there. How are you? I'm okay. I am wearing a sweater that you gave me today that it's actually super soft. It was one of yours. So it feels so very... soft. I think I kind of bought it so that I could be Corey from Empire Records. Everybody um, wants to be Corey from Empire Records. I have a skirt that goes with it, but it just never really yeah. worked. It was not, it's not the most comfortable outfit, the crop sweater and the mini skirt. So anyway, so actually we've been talking a little bit about grief. Uh, the 20th anniversary of our grandfather's passing is coming up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, we've been kind of, as we do wow. now that, we are living under the same roof. We do this fun thing where about 10 o'clock at night, we're like, okay, we're going to bed. And then we delve into like a deep conversation for like three hours. Yeah. The good news for me is that usually Olivia's standing in my doorway and I'm in bed. Yeah. So it's comfortable for me. She gets a couple steps in. I do get some steps in, but we've been talking a lot about grief. And so when uh, Zoe Fishman, the author, um, Mm -hmm. I connected with her on Twitter and I did a little digging and um, her new book that just came out, the fun widows book tour. Um, mm-hmm. She's a novelist and uh, Zoe is a widow, kind of this unexpected death of her young yeah. husband. Um, and we had such a fantastic conversation with her. She's today's guest, obviously a mom of two boys and a beautiful writer. Yeah. I can't speak. Zoe, but Livy and I both cried during the recording of this podcast. It was a beautiful conversation. Um, this newest book, I believe, is sort of a fictionalized dedication to the people that supported her yeah. um, during that really awful time. And she talked in the episode about all the ways that people supported her. Um, and I, I think it's so important. I think so often people don't know what to do or say. And just showing up in your organic way um, and sometimes having a little help as far as what to say is good too. Yeah. And I started doing that on Twitter a while back as kind of helping people with little scripts. And then I kind of came to Jenny with this idea of what if we make this into something bigger? And so we're working on some something some, bigger, something bigger to help you learn how to support your that people. Big. It's about five by eight. So it was a really fantastic and beautiful conversation about grief and hope and love and heartbreak. So please enjoy the conversation with Zoe Fishman and remember to rate, review, and subscribe to A Fresh Story so that we can keep telling fresh start stories. Zoe Fishman is the 2020 Georgia Author of the Year in the Literary Fiction category. She is the critically acclaimed author of six novels, the most recent of which is The Fun Widow's Book Tour, which will be published in March of this year. She is the recipient of a myriad of awards, including an AJC 10 Southern Books We Loved in 2019 selection and an Indie Next Pick. Interviews and profiles of her have been featured on Publishers Weekly, The Atlanta Jewish Times, The Huffington Post, among many others, and her essays have been published in the New York Times Modern Love column as part of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Personal Journey series and Modern Loss. Zoe worked in the New York publishing industry for 13 years before moving to Atlanta in August of 2011. She was most recently the executive director of the Decatur Writer's Studio, as well as instructor, and a visiting writer at is it SCAD or SCAD Atlanta? She is currently working on her next novel and raising her two young boys in Georgia. Uh, so we're so excited to have you here today. 
Thank you very much for having me. So I actually came across Zoe on Twitter. And um, I'm kind of, I, I dabble, I'm not a novelist yet, but I'd like to dabble in novelist Twitter over there. Um, and so you have, you're a very accomplished writer and um, I've been following you for a while and you are so vulnerable and open with sharing your story. And so I, when I came across you, I thought, oh, we got to talk to her on the podcast. <laughs> so we're really happy you're here today. Me too. How are you today, Zoe? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. It's been my book was just launched last Tuesday. Yay, congratulations. Thank you. And it's doing really well. And it feels really good um, because this book is undoubtedly the most personal thing I've ever written. Yeah. And to be applauded for authenticity is pretty cool. Yeah, which is actually, it's a perfect segue. Why don't you take us back to the beginning of your Fresh Starts journey? So I, in 2017, I had been married for eight years. I was a full-time author and I had ju- I'd given birth to my second son almost two years prior. It was June of 2017. Um, I was blissfully happy. Uh, my husband and I were very much in love. The kids were tiny. I had a five-year-old and an almost two-year-old. Um, So the physicality of that kind of parenting took up most of my life. Mm -hmm. And my husband worked full time. He was a psychologist and the healthiest guy on the planet, uh, literally. Mm -hmm. And he had to work one morning and never came home. He had suffered an AVM brain aneurysm and was taken by an ambulance to the hospital where he spent a week in a coma and then he died. Um, It was absolutely crushing. I had never in my naive life expected anything like that to happen. It's never been part of the narrative that I had constructed for myself. And so I had to reinvent myself as a widow, a single mother, on a single income, and also someone who is a griever first and foremost, because grief isn't something that has any kind of timeline on it. Once you're grieving, you're grieving forever. So I was not only grieving him, but I was grieving the life I thought I was going to have. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a big, you know, something you said that it was not in the narrative that you constructed, right, for your yeah. life. As a writer, so first of all, take us back, right? We want to hear the full picture here. Where did you meet your husband, kind of? What was your story, your love story? It was a beautiful story. I I didn't meet him, truly meet him until I was 30. So I moved to New York right after college. I was 21 and spent you know, nine years dating the free world, but never quite, never even really having a boyfriend. And for four years, I would see him on the F train in Brooklyn in the morning. We got on at the same stop. And I had met him at a party through a friend, a mutual friend of ours, but I could never get up the nerve to say hello to him. I just thought he was so handsome and out of my reach and I didn't want to embarrass myself. I didn't want to lose my seat in that particular car. (laughs) (laughs) 
last train on the the last car on the F train. It was perfectly positioned to get me to my job in the city. And he became my subway crush to all my friends. Everybody knew about him. Um, urged me, you know, get over my fear and say hello, but I just couldn't do it. And then one fateful May morning um, on the weekend, we got on the train at the same time and he got on the train with my work, former work friend who was still my friend and her husband. And she did the introducing. And it turned out that he had been intimidated by me in the same. And it had been four years of just kind of longing to say hello, but neither of us having the gumption to do so. That is the most New York love story. And I love that. It is really, I couldn't believe that that had happened to me. Yeah. I'd been on all the dating apps. I'd gone on all the bad dates. <laughs> I'd pretty much given up on anything happening organically. Yeah. That's really a timing is everything situation too, right? Because chances are if you had connected two years earlier, it wouldn't have been the right time. That's exactly right. And he felt the same way. I I was in a place, you know, my career was just taking off and I had, I finally understood my worth. Yeah. Um, and so I met him at exactly the right time. I love that. And so what was your wedding like? It was really beautiful. I grew up in Mobile, Alabama. Okay. And so we got married in Orange Beach. And mm-hmm. it was it was one of those days that started off cloudy, but the wedding was supposed to be outside. And I begged and begged and begged my mother to stick to the plan. And she did. And Thank goodness she did because it turned out to be the sun broke through the clouds and it was just the most gorgeous afternoon. Um, And everybody, it was a small wedding. And so everyone there, we loved and loved us. And it was just filled with joy. I love that. And you get to carry that with you. Uh, Yeah. Which is the beautiful part about memories, the beautiful memories, right? (laughs) Is that we get to carry that with us. I remember on the aisle, and crying because I couldn't believe that I had been, that I was that lucky. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's a scary thing to feel that lucky. That's exactly right. And I don't don't come from optimistic people. (laughs) (laughs) Us either. (laughs) Yeah, that's not part of my DNA. So I really had to, had to urge myself to lean into the possibility that yes, I, this was luck and timing and a lot of bad dates, pride, a lot of self-knowledge. And he was just the most wonderful man. He was truly a kind, curious, enthusiastic man who pursued life you know, a hundred percent pursued joy as well. Yeah. We love that. So I'm, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm going to assume, did you come from a Jewish family? I did. Okay. Um, Cause I'm only, I'm well, a couple of things tipped me off. Cause we do too, but um, <laughs> also you were in the Atlanta Jewish thing. So um, <laughs> what I feel like, you know, we very much understand what you're saying because when you come from um, 
often I would say the the Jewish family motto is like, what's going to go wrong, right? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so, why would it go right? Is really right, why would it go right? Right. Yes. So that definitely. What was it like growing up in a, in um, Alabama as a Jewish family? It was so. My father was a political science professor. Mm-hmm. He's originally from Queens, okay. and my mother upstate New York. So that's how we ended up in Mobile, Alabama. He taught at the University of South Alabama. Mm. We were aliens. But I only have mostly wonderful memories of being an alien. You know, I found the people that I needed to find. I enjoyed the beach, which was 45 minutes away. I really... I knew I was different. I think the biggest struggle for me is that I desperately did not want to be different. And so I spent my time there, you know, from age four to 17, trying to be blonde haired and Baptist. <laughs> it just wasn't going to work out. Yeah. <laughs> so how but did, I, yeah, no, how did, um how did your writing start? Where did that kind of intertwine with all of this? So my father was, you know, he, because he taught, he had the kind of schedule where he could be home with us in the summer for most mm-hmm. of the day. And I write about this in the book. He ran a summer school for me and my brother, much against our will. <laughs> Part of that was writing book reports and writing. Mm-hmm. And I remember right away feeling so confident with the page um even if the writing was very good I just felt at home there and so that's how I first began writing my mother was also a voracious reader and so I became a voracious reader and eventually I had a high school teacher an English teacher um Mrs. Strawn who's no longer with us rest in peace but she encouraged me to submit a short story to a citywide writing contest and it won and it was the I mean it really made a huge difference in my pursuit of writing career you mentioned feeling like an alien um and I wonder how your writing made you sort of unalienized you and then also how finding your husband how that felt in the scheme of things of feeling like an alien in the world, because I often also feel like an alien in the world. And I know how important it is when you express yourself or you find your people. Right. Um, the first part of your question was how did that, Oh, how did it inform my writing? Mm-hmm. It was, it informed it completely. I kept a journal since I was in the third grade. I had a Ramona Quimby journal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was where I poured all of those insecurities and alien type feelings mm-hmm. because I didn't have the confidence to be an alien on the outside. Yeah. Already looked so different. I didn't want to appear to think so differently. Um, so it became a haven for me. And then when I met my husband, it was one of those very rare and beautiful moments in life where all of the steps you've taken prior make sense. You know, yeah. I he had been my subway crush for so long and I had spent a great deal of time 
imagining the kind of person he was and the manifesting the life we would lead together. <laughs> and then when it happened, it was so beautiful and also so terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you marry your husband, you start having kids and take us, take us to that day. So he goes to work and what, you know, you, you lived this nightmare and, yeah. you know, the thing about nightmares that we often don't remember is that a lot of people live nightmares, but it's so isolating. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what we found with doing this podcast is like, there's so much trauma and there's so many people that live these like horrible moments, but it feels like you are completely in it and you're the only person, right. That's lived this nightmare. Right. So what happens? Who, who ultimately called you to let you know something was going on? Oh, it's a really sad story. You know, he was the kind of guy that was in touch all day long. And on that day, for some reason, I didn't hear from him. We it was two days before our youngest son's birthday, his second birthday. So my parents were in town and we were all supposed to meet at his mother's house, which is about a 45 minute drive away for Shabbat dinner. And I thought it was strange that I hadn't heard from him, but you know, I, I'm also not hysterical I'm not a hysterical person or what I wasn't then <laughs> so it didn't I wasn't that concerned um but then we sat down for dinner and he didn't show up and an hour you know all of a sudden it's six o'clock and everybody's eaten and we can't get in touch with him and my mother-in-law knew something terrible had happened she just mm. felt anxiously as his mother and we get a phone call from the hospital telling us you need to get down to the emergency room right away, but they can't tell you anything on the mm -hmm. phone. So I just remember that. I mean, we were so lucky that my parents were there to watch the kids. My mother-in-law and I got in the car, drove to the hospital, and still I thought maybe it's just a minor heart attack or yeah. didn't occur to me that it was going to be life-threatening and so we get to the ER the woman that receives us so he had um a Samsung phone so it wasn't a name it wasn't a number pass code it was through fingers it was a certain kind of movement mm -hmm. and nobody could get in and I knew it but I had forgot I just the trauma I forgot yeah, it. yeah. wasn't able to contact anybody and I forget how she ultimately got my mother-in-law's number, but she's walking us through the corridors of this hospital and I'm just holding hands with my mother-in-law and they take us into one of those tiny rooms you see on television, the rooms that never deliver good news. Yeah. And these two nurses came in and told us that he had suffered an aneurysm and that on a level of one to five, it was a five. Uh -huh brain was filled with blood and they couldn't tell us anything else so then we went in to sit with him and I just I remember those days and I but I was just I was so shocked nothing I couldn't feel anything because I was no. completely completely beside myself yeah and I'm sure your body goes into hyper protection mode yeah. right like all I could think about was our sons yeah. Yeah. 
So um, what did you do in those days? Like when you're sitting there with him, do you just like sit and wait or was there music or reading? There was, you know, he was Israeli. So he came from a very musical, um, spiritual family. Mm. We would all kind of take turns sitting vigil. Um, he grew up in Atlanta. So there were so many people that came to the hospital, brought food. Um, but I hid. I didn't yeah. see anybody. I didn't want to hug anybody. I just wanted to, you know, I sat there all day, but then it was imperative for me to get home every night and say goodnight to my sons. Yeah. And so it was like an hour and 20 minutes away from our house. So that's what I did every night. And I saw them in the morning and I told them what was going on because I wanted them to know the truth. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's important. I think a lot of people think I also have two sons and you know, I haven't gone through something like that, but you know, I think that we've gone through our own particular brand of trauma. And, you know, I think that it's so important to tell kids what's going on because oh. otherwise they internalize things. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. I can't think of anything worse than hiding your emotions from them because you're communicating to them that emotions aren't valid. So he passes away and, you know, then what's that like to wake up into literally a, a whole new world? A nightmare. It is a nightmare. It feels like it felt like watching a movie about someone else. Yeah. Nothing. You know, I'm the kind of person that I'm pretty pragmatic. So I just immediately got busy unraveling all the red tape of his life. And yeah. that's an extraordinary amount of time and effort. Yeah. Also a savior to me, because if I was doing that, I didn't, I couldn't sit with the pain. Yeah. And yeah. So that's, I just, you know, there's so many different elements involved in unraveling a life logistically. So that's what I did. And that my, our oldest son was just starting kindergarten. He died in June. So really by September, oh, he started in August. I had done most of that heavy lifting. Yeah. And you, you had to form a, a completely new identity within just seconds. Seconds. Yeah. And I didn't, but I wasn't one of those widows that wears the ring for years later or mm -hmm. keeps those hanging. I wanted to, all the stuff I wanted to get rid of. And I don't know if that was just it, because it was too painful to look at, but mm -hmm. I quickly set about rearranging the home and put mm -hmm. up hundreds of photos of him for the kids we spoke about him every day um but in terms of his things lying around they were not you have to decide what works for you and your kids like there's just no choice um yeah. and it's so individualistic um what was that like packing up his things and and sort of what was that experience like for you I just felt very, it was all, I was numb. Yeah. So all his, you know, best guy friends and his brother and said, you know, please come take a look if there's anything you want. First, I took my favorite items of clothing of his and packed them away for our sons. Yeah. Um, And then 
I had them come by and pick what they wanted. And then the rest I took to Goodwill. It was very quick. Yeah. And I think the, for some reason, and I'm so grateful for this, maybe because I'm a writer, I had kept all of our cards to each other. And so, and in a box. And so finally, when I was done with, you know, social security, bills, college loans, you name it, selling the car. Um, I sat down with that box of letters and just sobbed because there's such a beautiful representation of not only who he was, but who we were together. Yeah. 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 And I, I think I really appreciate your vulnerability and your honesty in telling this story because there, you know, I think with grief, especially there's so many like um, people that love to prescribe what grief mm -hmm. looks like and what, what it should be and what, right. Which we'll get into because you definitely have a lot to say about it. But I, I think, you know, what I love about what you're saying is like, for you, that's what worked best is not having those items around and having that moment to re, you know, look back on your life and, you know, there's so much judgment with grief. And yeah. I think like, that's why it's so important for people like you to write and tell your story and gives other per people permission, right? To say, yeah. well, I'm going to grieve the way that I'm going to grieve. So I just love that. So um, how did your writing come into play during all of this time, if at all? So I had just been signed. No, I had just submitted my idea for my fifth novel, invisible as air um to my agent and editor um it was a new contract and while he was in the hospital that deal was getting done um yeah it, it was very strange but also so such a relief that i would actually be getting paid yeah uh, my husband had been the primary uh money provider for us and I was with the kids and writing so the book was always supposed to be about grief invisible is there um the story was already in place which is the story of a mother who suffers a stillbirth and then masks her grief with oxycontin I wanted to write about how that drug knows no boundaries no class no yeah. social no economic level, no race, no gender, um, and how it destroys lives, largely because it's prescribed by a doctor in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, that was what I was going to write about. But when I started writing, I knew grief on a whole other level. I knew it firsthand. And so I think ultimately it became, I hope, more authentic to the reader. And I, it was also my escape. I mean, I wrote that book considering how many other things I had going on because it was the only time, A, my children weren't with me and B, I wasn't in the depths of despair. And again, it was my savior. I mean, that book really, really provided me with a life raft. When you, I would imagine that perhaps when you would sit down to write this book, um, you a writer wasn't the identity that changed. Mm. No, the only thing that stayed constant. You're right. right. 
And then also stillbirth, where did that concept come from? Because that is something that is, again, not talked about and happens very widely. Um, Someone very close to me suffered that. And then coincidentally, two other people in my orbit suffered. Yeah. And I, at that point in my life, I couldn't, I couldn't fathom something more horrible than carrying the baby to term, going to the hospital, delivering a baby who many times is not even alive. And then the female body doesn't know. Yeah. Not only in, you know, the depths of despair, but your breasts are leaking, your hormones are going crazy. Right. People who just saw you pregnant don't know any better. So they ask you how the baby's doing. I, that just seemed to me absolutely heartbreaking and life affecting. And I thought about the ways that would affect a marriage. When I, before my second son, I suffered a miscarriage very early on, maybe nine weeks. Mm -hmm. And it was incredibly disconcerting and he tried his best to empathize, but he just didn't understand. Yeah. So I was thinking, you know, I just went many levels further and imagined how that would affect a marriage and coming home to a room already set up. And then you have yeah. all the baby get rid of, just heartbreaking. It is. And we, we, my dear friend, one of my best friends had a stillbirth and we just had another friend that also mm-hmm. just... And didn't was, get to leave the hospital with her baby. No, and it was it's horrific. And again, it's something that um, it's something that happens a lot. And mm-hmm. again, people do not realize how much mm-hmm. it happens. And you know, it goes back to this concept of like, um, there's a there's a lyric in a song that's actually about miscarriage. My friend Jane Kramer wrote, and she says something about standing at the checkout line. And you, you're, you're like almost like an alien, right? You're, you're, you're living in this grief bubble. Everybody else looks normal around you and you are just not anymore. So can you talk a little bit about like that, that how grief changed you kind of as a human on a cellular level? Oh yeah. Um, I relate to so much what you just said, how the world just keeps going. You know, nobody feels you feel so insignificant and you just want to scream, you know, in the middle of the street, this just happened. He just died. Doesn't anybody care? I think I was, I know I was very lucky in that I had an incredible village. Um, My parents were here for the first two weeks and then ended up moving here to help out. My brother moved here a year later. Um, And because I didn't meet my husband until I was 30, I was blessed with this amazing network of women. And as soon, that's why I wrote Fun Widow as an ode to them, because they really stepped in and took care of us. Somebody would, there was a spreadsheet, somebody would visit once a month for a year, leave their families behind and come help us. And my son only knew kindness and generosity and selflessness. I mean, in between watching me cry and feeling the sadness all around, there were these tremendous bursts of joy. And that 
tempered my disbelief at the fact that everything else around me was still operating as usual mm. um, because I had that incredible care. But it's funny, I was just, you know, some good things have happened recently um, with Fun Widow and it's the same feeling. Yeah. Even after absolutely, you know, crushed by life, feels like nobody else cares. And also when you're celebrating a victory, it's like nobody else cares. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, very interesting, and it goes back to that idea that like it's so hard almost as humans to recognize that we can hold two emotions at one time, right? Mm -hmm. Something can be deeply, you know, traumatic, but we can also have moments of joy within those times. But it's very hard for the human brain to recognize that, and I think it's so important to model that for the next generation mm -hmm. of of people. Um, let's talk about Fun Widows book tour. So a book, the book Fun Widows tour. No, it is the Fun Widows book tour. I knew I got the name right. Um, <laughs> I was like, I knew there was a book in there somewhere. The Fun Widows book tour. Okay, tell us about the book because I'm I'm psyched to read this. Oh, thank you. I wrote this. I started writing this book right as the pandemic hit, and um, you know as a single parent during the pandemic, it was hard. Yep. Were you a single parent? Yep. I was alone with my two boys in the house. So, and yep. I, yeah, I, I hear you. Yeah. I fully lost my mind. Maybe yep. Yes. <laughs> I have PTSD, like serious PTSD from that time. I believe it. It yeah. was horrendous. Mm -hmm. um, so the book was always going to, it was originally called the book tour because I didn't think my grief was interesting enough to hold a reader's attention. Mm. So I wrote the first draft in my garage, which is, you know, not a she shed. It's mm. like a legit garage. Deep <laughs> freezer filled with Trader Joe's stuff and bikes and cobwebs and roach carcasses. And my brother and mother would come over twice a week for two hours um, while my kids were in virtual school to help them. And I would just walk out to the garage and type. I, I'm a very structured writer, so I, I always have to have an outline. I had an outline. I was following it. But I knew as I was writing it, it didn't have heart. Mm. Wanted to get the first draft in because, you know, as a writer, you're especially a mid-list writer, meaning someone who hasn't broken through the best-selling barrier yet um you're always terrified it's going to be taken away from you yeah oh so i turned in the first draft and both my editor and agent were like we like the idea but that's about it yeah. <laughs> you know 50 pages later um and they very kindly suggested you know this isn't really about a book tour it's about a widow who's trying to put herself back together again, who happens to be an author. And once they gave me permission and I gave myself permission to really turn this novel into a memoir of sorts, um, I just, it took off and it was much easier to rewrite. And I ended up, you know, it was like four drafts later. We finally, everyone was happy with what it turned out to be. That's amazing. And what a nice 
like a not nice but what a mm-hmm. i'm trying to think of the word like a special way to honor mm-hmm. your grief right and honor by like you you are obviously so appreciative of the village around you and that you know you got to kind of like include all these people as like a major thank you and say like thank you for getting me through this and also again you know this is why writing is so important and telling our story because think of all the young widows and young moms who are now single moms in in, within a second right and people don't realize life happens fast right um and you're going to, your voice is going to be, you know, in their hearts and their heads. And yeah. I just, it's so monumental and, you know, and so brave. It really is. So thank you for doing what you're doing because um, like you said, it's so incredibly isolating. And, you know, one of the reasons that we do this podcast and, you know, that we're so passionate about telling all of these stories is that when you can see that somebody else lived your experience, you know, that you're not alone in this world. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's all that matters. That's exactly right. So, so if somebody is listening to this and they're going through some sort of a fresh start in life, um, what would be some general wise words that you could impart to them? Well, first of all, you can do anything. You might not want to, but you can. Second of all, you'll surprise yourself with your own strength. And ultimately, that will feel really, really good, even though right now you feel really, really bad. There are no rules. People say all the time, you know, self-care. You know, it would be nice if we had the time. But <laughs> well, my, the mm-hmm. thing doesn't really happen. But for me, the, the one thing that I cling to, it makes me feel so much better and so much more together. Um, I get my nails done. If you can squeeze in the time for something like that. Yeah. And you and find an extra 20 bucks every week, I highly recommend at least 30 minutes of completely tuning out mm-hmm. from your responsibilities and the noise all around. Yeah, I love that. I did notice your beautiful nails, by the way. So <laughs> I did. Well, you're talking, I love that color. Um, and then our last question, uh, what was the, the last thing that you ate and truly loved? So my best friend came in, um, I had a book lunch party last week, and she and my other best friend who lives here, um, we went to Pond City Market, which is this really cool open air space here in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And we went to a place called Batiwala, which is Indian street food. Mm. Had a sweet potato chop, which was this insane salad of like sweet potatoes, pomegranates, these tiny little cornflakes. Um, it was just orgasmic. It was <laughs> sounds so really I, good. I love that. And I barely ever, I definitely never go out for lunch. So there was mm-hmm. a huge treat, and I'm still thinking about it. I love that. Sounds great. Um, So so if anybody wants to read the Fun Widows book tour or any of your novels or get in touch with you, what is the best way to do that? I have a website, zofishman.net. Um, you can follow me on Instagram. It's at the Shacham, S-H-A-C-H-A-M. And I'm on Twitter at zofishman76. And we'll link everything in the show notes too, so people can easily find. And I'm literally going to go right now and get all of your novels to read. Because <laughs> um, well, thank you, thank you so much for just opening your heart to the world because yeah. it's very scary to do that, especially after you've been through what you've been through, mm-hmm. and you know, for being so passionate about sharing your story and helping other people. We're very 
very grateful that we connected with you and that we got the chance to talk. Thank you. This was a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's story. We're always here and we're proud of you. Until next time, brave one. A Fresh Story is brought to you by Fresh Starts Registry, the first and only platform for everything you need to start again. You can read the show notes and learn more about today's episode at freshstartsregistry.com slash podcast. Thank you.